What a delight to be here. Thank you so much, Malone and Colin and Usag and Jerry and the choir and all who have done so much to make me welcome this weekend. A few years back, I came across a children's story by Roald Dahl. It's called The Upside Down Mice. A man of 87 lives in an old house and some mice in the basement start breeding fast. So he wants to get rid of them. So he gets some mouse traps and baits them with cheese. But then he puts glue on the underneath of the traps and sticks them to the ceiling. That night, we're told, when the mice came out of their holes and saw the mouse traps on the ceiling, they thought it a tremendous joke. They walked around the floor, nudging each other, pointing up with their front paws and roaring with laughter. The next morning, the old man came into the room and took the chair and put glue on the bottom of its legs and stuck it upside down on the ceiling near the mouse traps. He did the same with the table, the TV, and the lamp. In fact, he took everything on the floor and stuck it upside down on the ceiling, even put a little red carpet up there. That night, the mice came back, and they looked up, completely baffled. Good gracious me, said one. Look up there, there's the floor. Heavens above, shouted another. We must be standing on the ceiling. We're upside down. And one by one, they began to feel very dizzy. And then one of them said, look, I'll faint if I have to stand on my head any longer. So the senior mouse then said, don't worry. What we'll do is we'll stand on our heads. Then we'll be the right way up. And that's what they did. One by one, they stood on their heads. And one by one, they passed out from a rush of blood to the brain. When the old man came down the next morning, the floor was littered with unconscious mice. And he swept them all outside once and for all. Earlier, we heard Paul writing to Christians in Corinth, and we can be sure that when they heard those words, they began to feel very dizzy. Because everything Paul says is, well, upside down. Of course, they know Jesus had the same effect, because he talked about the poor becoming rich and the rich poor, the humble getting exalted and the exalted humbled, Beggars getting top seats at the table and the respectable left out in the cold. But now Paul's doing the same with them, the Corinthians. He's making them dizzy. In fact, he wants to make them dizzy. And none more so than those he calls the wise. Who are the wise? Well, think of someone you know who's super clever. And every so often you say under your breath, and don't they know it? Those are the wise, the super smart, wrapped up in their own super smartness. Paul talks about the wise philosopher, that is the intellectual trained in the best of the Greek philosophical schools, experts on the meaning of life, and don't they know it? What's more, the wise are good with words. They know how to carve a good sentence how to craft memorable one-liners, how to pause at the right time, how to use their voice. Paul talks about the debater of this age. Yeah, the debater, who knows how to win arguments. The Harvard-educated politician who knows just how to answer back to Tucker Carlson on Fox News. The wise. You sometimes find them on church vestries. The articulate academic who can steer a meeting just where she wants the lawyer who opposes the new building plan and no one can answer back. The wise, 
Believe it or not, some Americans think I'm wise just because of my accent. <laughs> Although we had a reader with the same accent. <laughs> He's stolen my thunder. I was speaking to a group of graduate students at Stanford once, of all places, and during the Q&A, one of them asked, why is it that everything you say sounds so much wiser than anything I say? If only they knew. When I left high school, my French teacher wrote in my final report, I'm satisfied that Jeremy is reasonably intelligent. Not, not exactly a ringing endorsement. The wise, then, puffed up, super smart, good with words. And down in Corinth, they've got followers, groupies, and they're saying to Paul, hey, if you want credibility here at Corinth, Paul, you're going to have to be wise like them. At the very least, you'll need to sound wise. Even an English accent would help. No, says Paul. You don't get it, do you? When God gets hold of you, your world gets flipped over. The wise will turn out to be foolish, and the foolish turn out to be wise. God's wisdom is upside down. Now, how's that? Let's see. And no apologies if you feel vertigo setting in after a bit. First thing, God in His wisdom meets us at our lowest point, not our highest. The wise in Corinth are those at the top of the ladder. They've worked hard to get there. They've studied long hours, sweated through exams, slogged to push up their IQ. They're smart by the ways of the world. And that means, of course, they must know all about God. They must be close to God. So they think. To that, Paul simply says, the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Foolishness to the Greeks. What's he saying? He's saying, God didn't come to meet us at the top of a ladder of achievement, at the highest rung of success, but at the lowest rung where we murdered His own Son. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with being intelligent, having degrees from Yale or Princeton or even Duke. So, don't use this sermon as an excuse to drop out of college. But if it's all done for no other reason than to impress, to manipulate others, to put yourself at the top of some hierarchy just for the sake of it, then soon you'll realize you've been a fool. That's why many tell us they meet God most powerfully, not when they know they've been smart, but when they know they've messed up, when the marriage collapses, the business crumbles, when you suddenly realize what a lousy father you've been, when you begin to remember all the white lies you've told, when you wake up and it's two in the morning and the makeup is off and there's no one around to impress. That's where you find out who you are. That's where God specializes in meeting you. Not when we're wrapped up in our own super smartness. Paul preaches Christ crucified, God coming to meet us at our lowest point. I know, it's crazy. It makes me dizzy to think about it. But then God's wisdom is upside down. But if you're already feeling dizzy, there's more to come. God in His wisdom upgrades us by downgrading us. These days, 
I'm often upgraded to business class by United Airlines. I'd like you to know this. That's because I've been a loyal customer for many years, so I've come to deserve gold star status. And you know, sometimes when they've wildly overbooked the plane, they pull some ordinary customer from the dark recesses of economy and put them next to me in business. What a nerve! Well, there are a few gold star flyers in the Corinthian church, the upper classes, those of noble birth, as Paul puts it, the wealthy, in other words. Most of the congregation were a motley bunch of traders and craftsmen, administrators, and yes, slaves. But some were high up on the social scale, and they enjoy being up there. They're used to being upgraded, looking down on the rest down there. So that, Paul says simply, when God wants to upgrade us, He chooses the foolish things of this world, and the most foolish of all was the death of His own Son. Jesus dies downgraded, degraded. Remember, the whole point of crucifixion was to shame the victim. You were crucified stark naked for all to see in the filthiest place in town or just out of town. You were the lowest of the low. As the poet W.B. Yeats put it, love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. Jesus dies in a pit filled with garbage and sewage. There He is degraded, and there we are downgraded. We are exposed as enemies of God. We are shown up as those who put the Son of God to death. That's all of us. There are no gold star customers here, no TSA pre-check. Here at the foot of the cross, there's no one to look down on. As Paul puts it here, here, no one can boast. But it's from here God can really upgrade us, <clears throat> remake us, promote us as beloved children of God forever. You say to me, come on, surely there are some people at St. George's who really are superior in the sight of God, people who've got every right to look down on the rest of us. I mean, just look at your new rector, sanctified beyond measure, so obviously set on a fast track to episcopacy. <clears throat> and what about that friend of ours who's so obviously holy, always reading the Bible, always praying? They're so obviously in a different league from the rest of us. Surely God sees that and says, okay, <clears throat> they do deserve to be upgraded. <clears throat> Excuse me. No. No one does. God upgrades us by taking us to the level playing field of the cross. The way up is the way down. The way to the rooftop is via the basement. Crazy, isn't it? Makes me dizzy to think about it. But then God's wisdom is upside down. And one more thing, and this will probably turn your dizziness into terminal vertigo. God, in His wisdom, overpowers evil from below, not above. The wise and the wealthy, remember, they are powerful, influential, 
And at their worst, they use that power to coerce and crush. They know how to intimidate, how to manipulate. And let's face it, that's how power sometimes works in a church. Not this one, but some. Top-down coercion, power-mad clergy crushing all dissent. And that's certainly how power worked in the Roman Empire, including Corinth. Any disturbance, any disorder, and rioting on the streets would be brutally and instantly suppressed, as in Hong Kong today, or Beijing, or Tehran, top-down brute force. And as we all know, this kind of violence easily escalates. That's just the way the world is, isn't it? If a country has its national security threatened, all too often it responds with a bigger, higher counter-threat. <clears throat> when I get beaten in an argument on Monday, I'll trump it with a better and bigger argument on Tuesday. When the five-year-old is repeatedly abused, all too easily, he'll become the abuser eventually, and often a worse one. The violence, in other words, gets sent out again in a new form and a bigger form. And so begins the steady rise of resentment and anger, the ever-rising cycle of revenge and counter-revenge, enemies pounding each other from ever superior heights. Whether in Gaza and Israel, Russia and Ukraine, the list could go on. Let's be real, that's the way power works in the world. Ultimately, brute force wins. <clears throat> that's just the way things are. To which Paul simply says, no, that's not the way God's power works. God doesn't sort out the wrongs of the world by hurling a thunderbolt at them from some great height above, but by bearing the pain of the world from below. He doesn't defeat evil by shattering it from above with laser beams of superior power, but goes under it all and lets it do it worst to him crucified Messiah. It's the ultimate oxymoron. The one they expected to crush the Romans is crushed. But that is the upside-down wisdom of God. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame those who look strong. On a cross, He takes on Himself all the hurt of a hurting world, the things which wreak havoc in your life, your rage at why you didn't get that promotion your bitterness against the parent who scarred your life, your envy at why everyone else always does so much better than you, the anger and pain and malice of an angry and pained and malicious world, it's all focused on Jesus. God doesn't send it back out again with double the force. He pulls it into Himself, absorbs it, takes it down into the depths, down into death, down into the black hole of hell once and for all so we can begin to be free from it. This is the insane upside-down wisdom of God. Evil is not overpowered by another evil from above. It is suffered and taken away from below. That's power, says Paul. That's power. And this power is the power of love, and it will shake the earth if we let it this is what will rescue marriages from ever louder rows and rising animosity. This is what will free us from thinking we have to do better than everyone else at everything. 
This is what will snap the chains of retribution which devastate the lives of thousands. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? It makes me dizzy to think about it. But then God's wisdom is upside down. <clears throat> and yet, and yet, after all this, you might still say to me, and Paul, all very nice for a Sunday morning in St. George's, but come Monday morning, we have to live in the real world. And the real world is very different. It's a lot tougher. That's right, we do. And it is tough. But just a minute. Suppose this upside-down world is the real world. Suppose St. George's is called to embody a different way of living, a different wisdom, God's upside-down wisdom. Suppose the upside-down world is the way God wants the world to be. Suppose it's the right way up. I'll say one thing for the mice in the story. When they came into the room that second night and saw everything on the ceiling, they didn't instantly assume the room was upside-down. They began to wonder whether they were. <laughs> 